0: Verses 6 and 7, again standing for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 9 and verse number 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And this all came to pass 700 years later in Luke chapter number 2 beginning with verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men." And Father, we would just ask that over these next few moments, you would speak to us. As our heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to your children. Through these lips of clay. Lord, I recognize this morning my inability to minister the word of the Lord. Lord, I may have communication skills, but I cannot do this without you. And I ask for the touch of heaven to be upon my heart, that I may communicate your heart to your people. And I pray, Father, that when we leave here this morning, we would have a greater appreciation for the grace of God that has saved us. May it come alive to us in the incredible story that we're about to discover today. Lord, the setting upon which a promise of peace forevermore was given. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen and amen. Would you give the Lord praise in his house one more time here this morning? Come on, you can do better than that. Give him praise in his house. Bless God. Before you're seated, would you turn to your neighbor and tell him that you love him? In Jesus' name. Bless God. You know, for those of you that are just joining us here... Last week we started a brand new series that we simply have called Heavenly Peace. And in this series, all that we are doing is we are exploring, we are investigating the unique peace that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. This is a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And it is because in the sending forth of God's Son, you and I have peace with God so that we may have the peace of God and that having the peace of God, we may go into the world we live in making peace with others. For the glory and the honor of God. Paul put it this way. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Having been reconciled to the Father ourselves. And so we are in a unique position to go throughout this world making peace. Looking for ways to create peace so that men and women may know the Prince of Peace revealed in our lives in Jesus' name. Now when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and announced to them that Jesus had been born, the Bible says that suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts and they praised God and they said, and it's so important to hear this song that they sung, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Because revealed in that very song of praise are the two purposes for Christmas. Not December 25th, but the two purposes for which God sent forth His Son. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. There is no greater way that God could reveal the greatness of His character than in sending forth His Son. In fact, in Hebrews, in chapter number 1, in verse number 3, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That word radiance means the outshining of God. Jesus is the outshining, or you might even say the rays of God. When you and I look into the sky and glance at the sun, you know as well as I do you're not looking at the sun You're looking at the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun are revealing the complex makeup of the sun. In the same way, you and I have never seen the Father... But Jesus Christ is the outshining, the rays of the glory of God so that when we've seen Christ, we have seen the Father. So there is no greater way that God could have ever revealed the greatness of His character than in sending forth His Son. That's why John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's why Paul said to the Romans that God has demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the first reason that Christ came into the earth was so that man would never cease to give glory and praise to Almighty God because in Jesus we see the greatness of our God reflected. Can you say amen in Jesus' name? Now the second purpose of Christmas or the second purpose of Christ's coming, His advent into this world is that on earth there would be peace, goodwill toward men. Now, I said to you last week that that is an unfortunate translation and it actually can be a little misleading because it sounds that when Christ came that he brought universal and global peace. Well, we know that's not true. We know that there has never been global peace since Jesus came upon the face of the earth. In fact, we know statistically that the 20th century was the bloodiest of all centuries combined. And the 21st century is not off to a good start either, I might add. So we know that when Christ came, He didn't establish universal peace, and yet we celebrate Him as the Prince of peace. So what does it mean? The proper translation there is this, and it's important to understand it. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, that draws out the fact that the peace He offers is provisional. It is conditional. Jesus came to provide the means by which all mankind may experience peace But the only ones who receive that peace are those with whom God is well pleased. If you are not pleasing to the Lord, then you will never have that peace in your heart and your life. The only ones who receive that peace and know that peace are those with whom God is pleased. So the question very quickly becomes, well, how do I know that I'm pleasing to the Lord? How do I go about pleasing God? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us very clearly that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The only way to please God is by faith. Turn to your neighbor and tell him the only way to please God is by faith. That is it. You can't please Him any other way. But what we said last week is that you even have to clarify faith today. You, have to, you can't just say that it's by faith we please the Lord because a lot of people believe that belief is equivalent to faith. That if they believe, they have faith. But that is not the case. Faith is much deeper than that. And I fear today that our churches are filled with men and women today who believe all the right things concerning Christ, and they believe that that translates into salvation and that they are saved. But I'm going to tell you, you can believe all the right things about Jesus and still not have faith in Him. You can believe all the right things about Jesus and still not be saved. Even James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter said the demons believe and they tremble. But the inference there is that they do not have salvation whatsoever. So you can believe that Jesus died, that he rose again, that there's no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. You can believe that he's coming again and that still does not guarantee salvation, it's faith. You see, faith is more than just believing. Faith is the idea of leaning on Him. It is the act of relying upon Him, of trusting in Him. It actually is carrying the idea of yielding yourself, of surrendering yourself to Him. The illustration I offered to you last week I think is still the best illustration I can give you. When I was sitting there a few moments ago, I believed that this platform could hold me. But it wasn't until I got up on the stage that I actually demonstrated I had faith in this platform and now that I'm on this platform there is no conflict I have peace that it is able to sustain me throughout this message in the same way from a distance you can say I believe that Jesus is the Son of God from a distance you can say I believe that He is the only way unto the Father from a distance you can say that I believe that He died and that He rose again and that He has provided a living way to the Father you can believe Believe it but you're not in faith until you yield your life to the Lord until you give him your life and you say Lord from this day forward you lead and I will follow I am not going to do what feels right I'm going to do what seems right to me from this day forward I will honor your word I will follow you wherever you lead me I will obey you and God says that's faith and when you have that faith You're pleasing to me because you're not trusting in your own understanding but you are leaning upon me for all of your tomorrows in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? That pleases Him and then now I have peace with God and I have the peace of God within my heart and my life in Jesus' name. And this is not a peace that promises us that everything is going to be easy. That everything is going to be without difficulty and struggle. How many of you know as a, you're, you're a believer you're still going to have struggles. And you're still going to have difficulties. But it's the peace and the assurance in your heart that God is going to bring you through it. For the glory and the honor of His great name. And I, I just want to remind you of that. Because it's so important for you and I to understand... That this peace is provisional. That God doesn't zap you with peace. God says, I'll give you this peace provided that you submit your life to me. That you yield your days to my direction within your life. And that is when peace comes. Because this morning I want to drill down a little deeper into that. And I want to do it by looking at the text that we read at the very beginning. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Because it really brings it out in those two verses. You know, those two verses are among some of the most well-known verses concerning the coming of the Messiah. Again, prophesied 700 years before Jesus would even be born. And even people that are not followers of Jesus Christ know this particular portion of Scripture because it is so rehearsed in our ears during the Christmas season. And yet something that is often overlooked is that we forget that there's a context to this prophecy. We think sometimes that these prophecies came in a bubble Like Isaiah is just writing about one thing and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit leads him in another direction and he just begins to prophesy something that has nothing to do with anything that he's just said. And that is not the case. There was a historical context to this prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born. And when you leave that historical context out... You really do not see the significance of what was prophesied. And and I know that I love history maybe more than other people do. But it's that context that really makes the prophecy stand out. That really gives it bite and a lot of times when we leave that context out, we don't appreciate the grace of God that is in that prophecy. So today my hope and prayer is that in sharing with you a little bit of the background of this, this incredible prophecy, that you will have a greater appreciation for the grace of God. Sometimes we think it was easy for God to save us. But I'm going to tell you folks, there was nothing easy about it at all. There's not one of us that made it easy for God to save us. But He saved us anyway. In Jesus' mighty name. And I want to thank God that one of the greatest prophecies concerning the coming of Christ came in the most devastating moment in Israel's history. and You're going to see that today in Jesus' name. Now, actually... The context of this goes back to chapter 7, and is all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9. Don't worry, we're not going to read and study all of that today. But you are going to have to give me a couple of minutes to give you a snapshot of what was happening at the time that this prophecy came forward. So can you hang with me for just a little bit? I need you to understand what was going on. Many of you may remember, some of you may not know this, but... When King Solomon, the king of Israel, died, the nation of Israel was divided in two. It had to do with the dispute over the next king, his son, Rehoboam. The ten tribes to the north wanted nothing to do with Rehoboam, but the two tribes to the south were willing to embrace him as their king. It became heated. They divided. To the north was the northern kingdom, which is Israel. Their capital city became Samaria. To the south was the southern kingdom, obviously, which was Judah. And their capital city was Jerusalem. Just an interesting side note. And I said this on Wednesday. I'm not bringing politics into this, pul- into this pulpit. But folks, there was something amazing that happened this past week. And I don't care what you think of Donald Trump. But thank the Lord for a president that for the first time in decades recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Folks, that is the Bible being fulfilled. You know, we think, well, it's going to cause all this angst and all of this frustration. And even today I was watching the news and there's protests going on. But you know what? It doesn't matter. That's the truth. The capital of Israel was established by King David. It is Jerusalem. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He rose again in Jerusalem and he's coming again in the city of Jerusalem. So we need to be thankful for that today. Come on, give God the praise. Because he's the one that did it. Now that's how the kingdom existed for over 200 years. That's the way it was. To the north is Israel, to the south is Judah. In fact, when you read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you're going to read the history of these two kingdoms and the various kings that served the north and the south. Some of those kings were good, some of them were bad, some of them were certainly ugly, some of them worse than others. You're going to read stories of reform and revival and great falling away from God. It's an incredibly tumultuous time that we see over that 200-year period of time. But now, let's fast forward about 200 years, give or take. It's 735 B.C. The superpower in that region is Assyria, Assyria. And they are mounting up with great strength and they're intimidating that region. So much so that the king of Israel joined forces with the king of Syria and they wanted to join in a coalition with the king of Judah so that the three nations combined could withstand Assyria. They knew they couldn't do it individually. They needed all three in a coalition to withstand Assyria. Well, the problem is is that the king of Judah wanted nothing to do with this coalition at all. And so the king of Israel and the king of Syria got into a conspiracy together and conspired to invade Judah to overthrow the king, King Ahaz, And to put in their king so that they, the three of them could come against Assyria. That was the plan. Now word of this gets back to Ahaz, who's the king of Judah. And he and the people, they literally, the scriptures say it this way, they are bent over like trees in the wind when they hear this. Because they know they are no match for those combined forces. And they also know that they can't turn to God because they're so far away from Him at this point, God is not going to intervene. Well, they didn't know their God very well. Because for the covenants that He made, He sent Isaiah to the king of Judah, King Ahaz, and He basically says to him, calm down and carry on. I have this taken. I am not going to let Jerusalem fall to the combined forces of Syria and Israel. I've got this, Ahaz. Don't fret. Don't be worried. Don't be dismayed. I'm going to protect Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand that they had already started invading. And they had already suffered great loss. They just hadn't gotten to Jerusalem. And so Ahaz just looks at this and thinks, that's impossible. And all God said is, trust me, Ahaz. Stand on my word, I'm going to deliver you. But Ahaz doesn't. He's moved emotionally by what he sees, by what he hears, and he reaches out to a neighboring king for their protection. And of all the people he could reach out to, you know who he went to? Assyria. Assyria. He asked the Assyrians to protect them. The Assyrians were more than willing to come in and, and do that. And they invaded both Syria and Israel or, and just decimated them. But you know what? They even broke their covenant with Judah and started in there as well. Now God would not allow Assyria at this time to overcome Jerusalem. But they were all devastated, left them decimated Israel and Judah alike were decimated because those in leadership would not trust in the Lord their God but instead reached out to other kings and to other nations for their help and for their intervention. And it decimated them. It crippled Judah. And it's actually brought out in chapter 8. In chapter 8, you got to remember, is actually a prophecy of what is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. But this is what's going to take place. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I do want to read some of these verses just so that you will get an idea of what was coming into Israel and to Judah as a result of their not listening to the counsel of the Lord. Here it is, Isaiah 8, beginning with verse 6. Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloah, Shiloh means peace. That's what it means. It's the waters of peace that flow softly. You have to understand that it was being used as a metaphor. What God was saying is: Israel and Judah has refused. The waters of Shiloh that flow softly. They've refused the water of my word, the peaceful word that flows softly. If they had listened to what I said before any of their enemies attacked, they would have had peace. I brought them the words that would have liberated them from all of their enemies. But because they refused these words and instead rejoiced in Rezin, who was the king of Syria, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of the, As- the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. What God is saying here, poetically and prophetically is, because Israel and Judah refused my message of peace, And trusted in kings and in nations. I am going to allow Assyria to come out of their borders and attack them and ravage them. Because they would not trust me. And then he prophetically speaks of what's going to happen. In verse 9 he says, Be shattered, O peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. The idea here is, you're going to seek to yourselves and to others to try and bind you up so that you will not be broken. But nothing you do from this point on is going to keep you from being broken because you've refused the word of my peace. He goes on and he says, take counsel together. You can counsel with all the kings and all the nations you want to but it will come to nothing. Speak the word. Be as positive in your confession as you want to but it will never stand for God is with us. What he's saying there is that God is with those who trust in his word. God is with those who yield themselves to the word of God and his peace will be upon him. But because you refuse my word, the peace is not upon you and nothing that you do from this point on will stand. It will all come to nothing because God is with those who trust in him. He says conditions will get so bad that when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. What he's talking about are men and women that have familiar spirits and channel demonic spirits and trying to get in touch with the other world, if you will. He's, t- he's saying you're going to come to a point where you know you need supernatural intervention, but rather than coming to God, you're going to seek out seances and mediums and horoscopes. Should they seek... The dead on behalf of the living should not a people seek their God? Why on earth would anyone read a horoscope? Why would anyone go to a medium? There is no one that knows your future but Almighty God. We should be seeking God's face in Jesus' name. But he says they're going to come to a place where they realize they need supernatural intervention. But rather than going to God... They're going to turn to mediums. He says, they will pass through it, through this difficult season, hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry. Listen to this. These are sad words. That they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. What he's saying here is that in the midst of their destruction, rather than being humbled... At the fact that they had refused God and that they had invited disaster in their life and coming to the Lord and saying, Father, forgive us for rejecting you, for refusing you. We surrender to you. Rather than that, they're going to become enraged towards God and they're going to point their finger into heaven and they're going to curse Him. They're going to say, how dare you, God? Why would you allow that to happen in our lives? I was reminded as I was reading that the other day of Proverbs 19 and verse 3 which says the foolishness of man subverts his way, ruins his affairs, then his heart is resentful and frets against the Lord. Incredible word. Isn't it sad? You know, we think that when someone's life finally bottoms out that they're going to call upon the Lord. Folks, I've been in this a long time and more often than not, when the bottom falls out, people point their fingers at God and say, you failed me. And they never consider, no, wait a minute, I rebelled against God. It's sad. And he says in their desperation, they're going to look to the earth and they're going to see trouble and darkness gloom of anguish and they will be driven into darkness wow talk about despair you know as I was reading that the other day this thought came to my mind that when they were reaching out to these other kings who would have ever thought that it was going to make matters worse I'm sure that at that moment it seemed reasonable with Assyria breathing down their neck with, with Israel and with Syria breathing down the neck of Judah, I'm sure that it seemed reasonable. Let's make a peace treaty. Let's get some help. Let's get someone in here to help us so that we can have peace. They had nothing of it at all. For all that they had done, all that they would have is a shattered, broken life left in pieces. They would seek to bind themselves up only to be broken again. They would conspire together, but it would come to nothing. They'd become so desperate that they would seek out the help of mediums and witches and warlocks and wizards, somebody to intervene and help us through it. They would become hard-pressed and hungry. Instead of being humbled, they'd look upward and enrage against God. They would curse Him. They would look everywhere for help, but see nothing but trouble, darkness, gloom, and anguish. And it all started with refusing the word of peace that he came to offer them. is that amazing? I mean, you would have thought they had done something vile, something so evil and vicious. But all of this started when God came to them one day and said, if you will obey my word, if you will do what I tell you to do, I will intervene and I will miraculously deliver you. But you refused my counsel. And in that you opened up the floodgates of destruction. Man, I'm going to tell you. Through the years, I've seen this on a much smaller scale, but I've seen it. Listen, folks. No one wakes up one morning and says, You know what? I'm going to wreck my life. Nobody gets up one day and says, You know what? I'm going to take the one life that I have to live and I am going to wreck it so that at the end of my life, all that I have is regret. No one gets up one day and says, I'm going to wreck my marriage. Nobody gets up one day and says, I'm going to wreck my family. No one gets up one day and says, I'm going to ruin my reputation. No one gets up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to wreck myself financially. No one gets up one day and says, I'm going to get addicted to drugs. Nobody gets up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to start the long road into alcoholism. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to have as many marriages as I can possibly have and I'm going to have as many children with as many different men and women as I possibly can because I want to perpetuate my selfishness from one generation to the next. No one gets up one morning and says, you know what, it's not enough for me to ruin my life. I'm going to leave a legacy so that long after I'm gone, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren are going to continue in a process of self-destruction. Nobody, nobody does that. And yet it happens every day. And it happens because one day when God offered words of peace, that it would have given you a life worth living, they refused those words and said, I'm going to live my way. It all starts when men and women say, my satisfaction, my gratification, what feels good to me, what seems right to me, will be the final word. We think it's so much more sinister than that. But you can't get any more sinister than that. It is saying, Lord, I don't care what your word says. I'm going to do it my way. I will even call myself a Christian. I will even go to church on Sunday morning. But at the end of the day, my gratification, my satisfaction, what makes me feel good will be the final determination Of the direction I take in my life. And those men and women will go out and they will look for things to bind their lives together. Some will use medication. Some will use drugs and alcohol. Some will throw themselves into relationships. And they will do everything they can to keep it together. But no matter how hard they try. They keep breaking their lives over and over again. You find others to tell you that you're right. You put around yourself men and women who will always build you up and never check you. But nothing that you do and conspire together with them will ever stand. You can even check your horoscope, read your fortune cookie. You can even look at the bottom of your expensive Starbucks teacup and try to read your future. And then you'll get angry with God and point your finger at His face and say, God, why did you allow that to happen? When it wasn't God at all It was one day you said I'm going to be my God And I'm going to do it the way I want to live it And you'll look And all you'll find Is trouble and darkness And gloom and anguish Praise God Aren't you glad you came to church this morning I mean (laughs) You know I mean seriously It sounds so hopeless And it is But that is until God shows up How many of you know that as long as God is around, it's never hopeless? Come on, how many of you know that? That as long as God is around, it's never hopeless? I had to show you that because here he comes in, in chapter 9, verse 1, and says, nevertheless. How many of you love that word? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. In other words, there's always going to be hope. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now let me just go through that quickly. First of all, I love that word, nevertheless. Because you know as well as I do, nevertheless means regardless. It means in spite of. It means that what was previously said is not in any way going to stop what is about to be said. That what has been previously done is not going to stop what is about to be done. And it's the word that ties the last verse of chapter 8 to the first verse of chapter 9. Do you remember what the last verse was? Let me remind you. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Then he comes in in verse 1 and 9 and says, Nevertheless... Nevertheless, what he's saying is, they refused me, they rejected me, they cursed me, they said it was my fault, they broke their lives, they shattered their lives, they were hard pressed, darkness loomed, and filled them with gloom and despair, nevertheless, I'm going to save them, and I'm going to restore their lives, in Jesus' name. How many of you are glad you serve the God of nevertheless? Nevertheless. Can I just tell you this morning, you're here because one day God said nevertheless, because all of us in this room have rejected God. We've all refused our God. We've all pointed our finger at God and said, Lord, why would you do that? We were messed up, broken in pieces, but God one day said, nevertheless, hallelujah, nevertheless, I'm going to save them. Nevertheless, I'm going to heal them. Nevertheless, I'm going to deliver them. We're here today because One day God didn't give up on you But he said nevertheless In Jesus name Come on somebody Give God the praise this morning If you believe that Hallelujah Nevertheless The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed As when at first he lightly esteemed The land of Zebulun And the land of Naphtali And afterward more heavily oppressed her By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan In Galilee of the Gentiles Now let me stop there you know, so quickly, we read those two cities, Zebulun and Naphtali, and think nothing of it. But again, it's that context that makes what we're going to read in a moment stand out. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali were the two most northern cities of Israel, the northern kingdom. Which means that when Assyria attacked, they took the brunt of the attack. When you think about it. When the Assyrians are attacking, they are fresh. They are at full strength. And the first two cities they hit are Zebulun and Naphtali. In the region of Galilee. And they are decimated. Leveled to the ground. And not only were they messed up on a physical level. But they already had a bad reputation to boot. Because it was the region of Galilee. It says the Galilee of the Gentiles. They had been inundated with Gentiles in those two cities. And they had intermarried. And they were considered by all the other Jews half-breeds. And they looked down at them. In fact, it was a common saying among all the Jews, nothing good could ever come out of Galilee. (laughs) Many of you know, when you fast forward 700 years... Jesus the Messiah started his ministry in the Galilee. Most of his ministry was in Galilee. Most of his miracles happened in Galilee. Leave it to Jesus to start his ministry in the place that was the most burned out and was devastated in their reputation. Just to sit here in 2017 and tell you, it doesn't matter what havoc sin has played in your life and how badly you've been damaged by it, nothing is too difficult for your God. In Jesus' name. Come on, somebody give God the praise. He started with the hardest case. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him nothing is too difficult for your God. Okay, he goes on and he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. This is a nation that was laying in ruins. You've increased its joy. This was a city that once was in sorrow." They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. I wish I could just break this down for you, but I'm just going to have to do it quickly. And stay with me, it'll be worth it. Yes, they refused me, God is saying. Yes, they invited destruction into their lives and blamed me for for it. Yes, they went after wizards and fortune tellers and they went after witches and warlocks. Nevertheless, I'm coming to their rescue and one day I'm going to bring light into that very region and I'm going to multiply the nation that once was in ruin. I'm going to give them joy where there was once sorrow. They're going to rejoice like those who have come into the harvest. They're going to rejoice as soldiers who divide the spoils of the battle as ones whose heavy yoke has been broken. They're going to rejoice. Now listen to this like warriors who throw their shoes and their clothing into the fire why because the battle is over I don't need them anymore the fight is already over and why verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given And the government will be upon His shoulder. And His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What God was saying is, even though you've made a mess of your life, nevertheless, I am still a gracious God. And I have won the war. I've won the battle. And if you'll come to me, I'll give you peace again in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for the mercy of our God today? And this promise was given under those conditions so that we may remember that in the midst of our rebellion, in our rejection and refusal of the kindness of God, nevertheless, 2,000 years ago, he intervened in sending forth Jesus Christ. And for those who will embrace him, he has peace that passes all understanding. To God be the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Yeah, give him praise one more time. Now, listen, he says, for unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, or unto us a child, you know, that whole thing. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He gives us, and then he says, his name will be called. And then he gives them four names. And revealed right into those names are actually the key to this peace. And that is submission. It is obedience. Like, everybody wants this peace, but again, we're thinking, God's going to zap me with peace. No, 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 no. You're going to have to obey him, and then peace will come. And revealed in those four names is that very thought. Now, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to finish this up looking at the first two names... And then next week, you'll have to come back, and we'll do the next two names, okay? Got to leave you on the cliff, man. I mean, you got to come back, all right, for the bridge, okay? So I'm going to just very quickly give you the first two names. The first name that was given to the Messiah is Wonderful Counselor. He's the Wonderful Counselor. You know, it's sad, but in some of the other translations, including the one that we've just used here... There's actually a misplaced comma. It has wonderful comma, counselor comma. And it gives you the idea that they are two separate names. That his name will be called wonderful. His name will be called counselor. Actually, that is why we keep studying the transcripts. Because we know that that is not the case. That is a misplaced comma. It should be wonderful counselor. It's one name. Wonderful is describing the counselor. Wonderful is describing the counsel that the counselor gives. It is wonderful. And the word wonderful, it it means more than what we think of it today. I mean, listen, we throw that word around all the time. We had a wonderful meal together last night. What a wonderful time we had. What a what a wonderful movie that was. What a wonderful evening we had together, fellowshipping. And and we use that word so often that it no longer is wonderful. It's, it's, it's no longer a, a wonder. But to the Hebrews, the word wonderful meant miraculous. It meant extraordinary. Uh, It meant supernatural. What he's saying is that this son, who we know is Christ, is the miraculous counselor. And the counsel that he gives is miraculous. He's an extraordinary counselor, and the counsel he gives is extraordinary. He is a supernatural counselor, and the counsel that he gives is supernatural The counsel that Jesus Christ came to give mankind is nothing short of extraordinary, of supernatural. It is nothing short of miraculous. It is the very essence of miracles. And those who actually submit themselves to the word of this counselor will see miracles in Jesus' name. Why don't we see miracles? It's very clear because we do not trust the word of God. We run to counselors. And we run to people who will tell us what we want to hear. We'll run to doctors. And I have nothing against doctors. Don't misunderstand me. But they should never be your first line of defense. Your God in heaven is your first Line of defense. And I want to go and find out what God has to say. About these things. Before I listen to the professionals. Because the professionals don't know me. They don't know my marriage. They don't know my relationship. My finances like my God. I want to submit myself. To what the word of God says. In Jesus name. Because his counsel is miraculous. It is extraordinary. It is supernatural. I love. What it says in. Psalm 32, in verse number 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. God says, let me instruct you. Let me guide you in the way that you should go. Let me guide you with my eye i got to imagine that that is what Paul was thinking when he said that we walk by faith and not by sight. What he's saying is let me guide you with my eye. Don't you guide yourself by what you see and by what you feel. You just keep your eyes on me and let me lead the way. And wherever I'm taking you, you follow me and I'll lead you into victory in every season in Jesus' mighty name. He says don't be like the horse and the mule. Don't be like an animal that is driven by their instincts and their feelings and what seems right at the moment and they only learn by extreme measures of correction. Just don't be that way. Just follow me. There are only two ways you can learn wisdom. You can learn it the hard way or the easy way. The hard way is by suffering consequences. The easy way is just by following your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, remember, many sorrows follow the wicked, those who get their eyes off me. But there is great mercy that surrounds those who put their trust in my word, in Jesus' name. Bless God for that. Yeah, give God the praise for that. You know, I was thinking the other day of uh, what it says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, God is speaking to the church at Laodicea and some of you know this. He says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. How many of you know that there is often a great discrepancy between how we see ourselves and how God sees us? I mean, this is a church that, you know, they came in every Sunday and said, Man, praise God, we are rich. We are increased with wealth. We have need of nothing. God has provided all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And while they're saying this, God's looking down and saying, Uh You're poor. You're blind. You're wretched. You're miserable. And you're buck naked. And I can see through all of the phoniness that you got And he says so you know what Get off your soapbox And listen to my counsel Because I counsel you to buy from me Gold that has actually been refined in fire That you may know what true riches are Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven Where moth and rust does not corrupt And thieves do not break in and steal for what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Some of you who think that financial success means that God's hand is upon you, don't be surprised if you get more wealthy. Satan would love to give you more money to keep you out of heaven. It isn't how big your bank book is that determines whether the hand of God is upon your life. It doesn't matter how little it is either. It's as Jesus Christ truly living within you. It's the peace of God that passes all understanding upon your life. He says, I want you to have white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. I don't want you anymore to try and clothe yourself in garments of self-righteousness because your righteousness is like a filthy rag. I want you to put on robes of righteousness that have been purchased by my son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to have your eyes anointed with true salve that you may see me high and lifted up. Folks, he's the wonderful counselor. Don't reject his counsel today because it is nothing short of miraculous. But he is also the mighty God. He's the mighty God. The word mighty there means strong. It means mighty. It means champion. He's saying that the Messiah is the strong, mighty, champion warrior. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God mighty and awesome. In Psalm 24, in verse number 8, it says, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. There is no shrinking away for God because all power and all authority belongs to Him. There's no question who is going to win. He is the mighty God. He is the ever courageous one. He is the mighty God. And where do I go from here? I mean, I'm sitting in my office thinking, what illustration do I offer? Everything in the scriptures declare the power and the might of our God. But let me just give you this one because it's one of my favorites. I think of the three Hebrew children who were awaiting their execution for their refusal to worship any God but Jehovah. They were about to be thrown into a blazing furnace that was so hot that the men attending to their execution died while throwing them into the fire. And after they had been there, the king went down to verify that they were extra crispy and that the execution had in fact been carried out. And when he looks into the furnace, he says, wait a minute. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True that, king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth one is like the Son of God. He's the mighty God. Can you say amen to that? Can I tell you, he's still walking through the fire with his children today you know what I love about this story though is when they came out the Bible says that not one thread was singed and there wasn't even the scent of smoke upon their clothing which means that he's not only mighty enough to deliver them from the fire but he's even able to deliver them from the effects of the fire can I tell you today that God is not only mighty enough to take you through what you're going through right now but he's actually able to bring you through even the effects of it so that it never bothers you and some of you are even thinking today there is no way that that shouldn't have messed me up emotionally and mentally and physically how is it that I'm standing here today by the grace of God it's because he's not only strong enough to take you through it he is also strong enough to keep the effects from ever having an effect on you in Jesus name come on give God the praise he's the mighty God hallelujah hallelujah bless the Lord but you know (laughs) As exciting as all that is, and I could, I could talk about Goliath, and I could talk about the parting of the Red Sea. But the only scripture that kept coming to my heart when I heard that word mighty was 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Wow. In closing let me just say this. No matter how wonderful his counsel is it will only be as good as your willingness to submit to it. It doesn't matter how mighty His hand is. It is only going to be as mighty as your willingness to humble yourself under His mighty hand and let Him exalt you in His time while all the time casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. That's why I say that revealed right in those names is this idea of surrender and this idea of provisional peace. He's saying, listen, I've given you the word for peace and I have all the power to give you peace, but you have to submit to my counsel and you have to humble yourself under my mighty hand. And isn't this the push? Isn't this the tension? Because just like King Ahaz, it's easy to say that when you have no struggles but when the pressure's on when the marriage is failing when the bills are piling up when sickness comes when that stress is applied oftentimes that's when we pull out and we lean on our own understanding rather than trusting in God and the moment you pass away from His mighty hand his wonderful counsel you're on your own you know I love Christmas but sometimes we get focused so much on a baby in a manger that we forgot that baby grew up became a man died on a cross three days later arose from the dead sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now crowned with many crowns and you can warm up to him as a baby you struggle with him as a king Folks he's the king Of glory And he has the counsel That will work miracles And he has the power to bring you through But you've got to humble yourself Under him Are you going to? In Jesus name Heads are bowed eyes are closed here today. Bless the Lord Hallelujah Can we just stand All across this auditorium those of you that are redeemed.